All right, here we are. This is the uh, Friday Q&A. And the first question we have today is about Brian Simmons. And if Brian Simmons and his passion translation can, this is interesting, can build a case for having skepticism about believing the gospel authors and the, and the Bible in general. In other words, does one wacky religious nut, to use the terminology from the question asker, does one wacky religious nut prove that all religious people are wacky nuts is kind of the implication. But let me read to you guys the question. Um, this one was selected ahead of time. You guys are loading your questions now. I'll do 20 questions today and there'll be timestamps below to help you navigate to just whatever is the most you know relevant for you and helpful for you. And um, here we go. Robert asks this question. Recently, I've seen several of your videos dealing with the Passion Translation and the criticisms seem very much on point. Clearly, Brian Simmons is a bit of a nut. And I think you'd agree that religions can attract those types of people. So why would you assume Paul or the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John weren't also nutty? At the very least, you should be skeptical of their writings. Remember that, that conclusion. At the very least, we should be skeptical of their writings because Brian Simmons is, in his words, a nut. Further, there is no way to go back to do the sort of analysis of those authors, another important claim, the way you can with Simmons. For example, the review you do of Simmons' lectures, as opposed to simply having his passion translation, is very effective in demonstrating just how nutty he is. Nothing even close to that is possible with the biblical authors, so why give them credence? All right, there's a lot to unpack there. I, 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 this is one of those questions I could do like a 45-minute thing. I won't. This is going to be a quicker answer. And then I'll go to your guys' questions today. Um, <clears throat> if you like this, you want to learn to think biblically about everything, at least be on that path with me, then you might want to subscribe, putting out at least two videos a week, verse-by-verse um, -verse teaching, topical issues, and Q&As as well. So Brian Simmons versus the Apostles. What I need to do to try to defeat this reason for being skeptical about the Bible and about Christianity and about every religious claim is to try to show that there are substantial differences between, say, Brian Simmons, in this case, and the gospel authors. So let's just talk about some of those substantial differences, because I think these comparisons stumble people very much. I really do think they stumble people. Not that they're necessarily going to lose their faith over it, but I think they, they go, oh, I don't know what to do with that. And I do think it's the kind of thing I hear from the non-believing communities a lot, where they're like, you know, if, if one religious person's a nut, then they all are which is really a kind of like a anti-supernatural prejudice that I think is happening in the, in that community. It happens in scholarly circles. It happens in lots of places. And I think it's kind of a blind faith position to be completely honest with you guys. So <clears throat> these comparisons can stumble people, but I think that these kinds of comparisons are great for showing how Christianity shines in the evidence department, the evidence, the factual, historical, testable, you know, evidence department of proving religious claims. So this is why I like this kind of stuff. Let's talk about a few specific examples. Brian Simmons, <clears throat> you know, he's the author of the Passion Translation. I'm assuming most of my audience already is at least somewhat familiar with this guy, so I'm not going to get into all that. But um, he has religious experiences that are private, okay? Here's how he's different than the apostles or the writers of the Gospels. Um, his religious experiences are private. Their re religious experiences were public. His religious experiences were witnessed by just himself, and then he tells us about them. Theirs are witnessed by many various people, right? So Jesus appears to um, lots of people, lots of individuals at once in his resurrection appearances. And this is not a controversial historical claim to say the following, that there, these disciples of Christ really experienced some kind of risen Jesus thing. Like there was something external to them that they corporately experienced that made them believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
So Brian, you could easily say he hallucinated or he lied about it or whatever, you fill in the blank. You can discount it. There's only one individual, but there's multiple. Plus, you wouldn't say it was a hallucination because they're multimodal. And you can actually look up hallucinations and the kinds of hallucinations people have. They weren't grief-induced. When you look at um, James and Paul, and you're like, these guys are not having grief-induced hallucinations. Plus, that doesn't fit grief-induced hallucinations. What I'm suggesting here is the types of experiences were public and verifiably not the kind of thing that Brian Simmons may have experienced. Um, also, Brian Simmons' views are held only by his own circle, right? The only people endorsing the Passion Translation and Brian's particular teaching, the only people, they're all from the same, like, preset belief system, right? Within Christianity, there is, like, what some would call, like, hyper-charismatic, right? I think that's a fair term to use because they're not just charismatic. I'm charismatic. They're hyper. They're, there's a... Um, it's, it's almost like char charismatic anarchy that goes on. There's no rules in a sense, no good rules anyway. So <clears throat> this is, this is, these are the people that endorse the passion translation. But when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, which is the bedrock of Christianity, we have people who were opposed to the resurrection end up, ended up believing it like Paul, the apostle. I mean, Paul, the apostle was persecuting and hating Christians. And he was, you know, this would be like someone who's a cessationist evaluating the passion and going, I, I can't help but admit it. That's a really good translation. He did a good job there. Those are secrets of Hebrew and Greek. But instead we have the opposite, right? <clears throat> Even people in his own camp, when they evaluate the passion, they're like, well, you know, it's not really a translation. You know, they, they even say this. Whereas with the resurrection of Christ, we have Paul the apostle who encounters Christ. Even the enemies of Jesus are, are saying that the disciples stole the body, which confirms that there really was a body, that there really was a death uh, and, and a crucifixion and then an empty tomb. So that alone is, is evidence. These are things you can build for a historical case. Uh, Brian Simmons stuff is, here's another comparison, is provably wrong. Brian Simmons, you can check, even if you didn't have any video footage, like I put video footage because it's fruitful on YouTube. It, it has an impact. It, it lets people learn so much about the person when they watch him. Um, I think if you put up video footage of Paul the Apostle, you'd see him healing people. I think if you put video footage of Peter, you, you, would, you would see them, you know, saying get up and walk and people getting up and walk. That's what I think you would see. But, um, but with Brian Simmons... Even if you didn't have the video footage, you could check the text that he's written. And so he makes claims about his translation, like the word doulos, which any first year Greek student already knows this. The word doulos, it just means servant or slave. That's what, it's all, all it means. That's the entire meaning of it. And Brian Simmons translates it in Romans 1 and says it means a servant who serves his master out of love and not out of obligation. And, and this is like demonstrably false because we can check language. And so he has all these things that are obviously false. He claims that there's these Aramaic sources behind the Passion Translation and the Aramaic originals, a term he uses that he's made up out of thin air. Um, there are no Aramaic source texts, right? Because these this is claims about actual physical documents, right? Those don't exist. And yeah, but the resurrection of Jesus has tremendous historical support. And I'd recommend you check out uh, either Gary Habermas and his content on the resurrection of Christ, historical support, or William Lane Craig, or even my own video on evidence for the resurrection. Tremendous historical support. It, it should compel you to believe the evidence. Um, so yeah, we can analyze these things. We could even look at the psychology of guys like Brian Simmons compared to, say, the gospel authors. Um, even while he was an atheist, Anthony Flew said that Paul was a first-rate philosopher. Paul the Apostle, first-rate philosopher, so he's not just some wackadoodle. Um, ethicists would say that Jesus is a first-rate ethicist. Others have examined Paul to try to see, was he crazy? And you don't see any evidence of insanity. 
um, were they prone to believe delusions and visions that, 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 you know, say hallucinations are real? Actually, it's not the case, right? When, when Peter sees an angel and the angel takes him out of, out of the prison, right? He thinks he's having a dream. See there, this is important. Their default position is I had something crazy happen. I saw something crazy. It probably wasn't real. So they're not prone to believe these things. So they're not religious nuts. That's what I'm saying. They're not people who have psychological issues like some people would claim uh, without evidence. They're, they're people who had experiences. Yeah. So if, if you want to say like, we, you know, we should be skeptical of all religious claims because of some religious nuts, I think that that is as bad as believing all religious claims without any skepticism. A healthy perspective, in my opinion, is we should compare the qualities and kinds of evidence for religious claims. And we should say this one's more likely true because it has evidential support. You know, if I can comp compare, say, Joseph Smith and Mormonism to the evidence for Christianity, there's such an incredible disparity in evidential support that I become Christian and I reject the LDS church. All right, let's go to the next question. This question comes from Dave Baran, who says, if Moses was God's chosen one, why did God want to kill him in Exodus 4.24? Also, why did Zipporah, what did Zipporah mean when she says, surely a bloody husband art thou to me? Thank you so much. All right, so Dave Braun's question is about Exodus 4.24, and I'll get us there. Um, but here's the background. God is is making a new people, a, a new nation of Israel, right? They, they're, they're descendants of Abraham, but they're all enslaved in Egypt. They're just a bunch of slaves. They're not their own nation. God's going to call them out in the book of e in Exodus, and he's going to call them out of Egypt, and he's going to sort of turn them into a nation. He gives them a set of laws and rules. One thing he requires, though, is that they stay faithful to even the faith of Abraham. And one way to demonstrate that is circumcising their sons, circumcising the, the men. Moses didn't do this for his own son, right? Maybe because he's been outside of Egypt, outside of the Israeli influence that's there. And some, whatever's going on, he has a compromise in his own family life. And God takes it very seriously. So here we are in... Exodus 4.24, we have to understand circumcision as much as some people are like allergic to the idea of blood and stuff. The issue here is it's about, um, I think circumcision represents putting off the flesh, right? But it also represents like the, the sort of cutting of a covenant. It's almost like a mini picture of cutting a covenant where they would like sacrifice an animal as a way of affirming the contract, the covenant, the promise between two parties. Circumc circumcising your sons is a way of saying, yes, Lord, I'm part of, I'm part of the promise you've made. Not circumcising your sons is like saying, I reject you. So it has a huge religious significance for the Jew. In Exodus 4.24, it says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. This is about Moses. God's going to kill him. Why is this? Because Moses was going to lead the people, but he wasn't going to be faithful to God himself. Uh, this could be a micro little story to tell us how God feels about leaders who are hypocrites, about leaders who take heed to the ministry, but don't take heed to themselves. They deal, they, you know, we, we see this with COVID restrictions, right? We saw in our government, whether you like the restrictions or not, isn't my point. The, the point here is that there are government officials who made restrictions and then they didn't follow them. And what did you think when you saw video footage of these, these government officials violating their own policies? It's, it's like, I don't want you as a leader. This is wrong. And because it's a bigger deal than COVID, right? This is, this is, this is the heart of a relationship with God as God establishes a new nation and his single leader for the nation is, is, is being a hypocrite. So God's going to deal with him, make an example of him. Now, was God really going to kill him? No. Um, God knew ahead of time that this would finally trigger Zipporah to do the circumcision, 
interesting that she's the one that does it. And I think there's a possibility there that she was the one resisting it. That Zipporah, being a wife he got outside of Egypt and who was not a descendant of Abraham, she may have been pushing back against the circumcision. Finally, she does it. And then she calls out, you're a, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. Well, the next verse explains why she says it. It says, so she, she, uh, so he let him alone. God left Moses alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. She's saying that you being my husband has brought blood into my, into my family or blood, meaning like violence, meaning like suffering. And she obviously had her reasons why she did not want this circumcision to take place. Moses yielded to that and didn't lead his family in righteousness. And then the consequences were coming as a result. I think it's a message to us that we cannot just take heed to our ministries. We can't just be faithful with the calling God's given us. He has called us to be followers of Christ. And as a you know new covenant believer, that means sanctification in my life and not ignoring the call and not thinking that because I have, oh, I've got a, I've got a YouTube channel. Look at all the people that are being impacted by, by this ministry. And that that's beautiful. But guess what? That is nothing. That, that, that has nothing to do with my walk with Jesus. I, I need to walk with Jesus and I need to be very serious about my own sanctification, about cutting off the flesh, right? That, that's the symbol of circumcision is putting off the flesh. Well, I need to put off the actual carnal nature and follow Christ. And there are consequences if I don't. Same for you. Same for you. Good, good time to say before we go to the rest of the questions, are you guys taking care of yourself, not just your ministry? Are you being faithful in your walk with Christ, in your daily devotional? I am devoted. I'm in, I, I serve you in love, Lord. I know you. I walk with you. I walk in you. I, uh, I don't keep sin, you know, as a, as a regular fixture in my life. I repent of it. This is, this is hugely important. Take heed to yourself. Question number three is from Elizabeth. Can you help me understand the comparison slash contrast between how the Holy Spirit comes upon versus in someone? Is that correct in the Old Testament? He came upon someone, and she references Ezekiel 29.45, Exodus 37.27, but not in. And in the New Testament, he indwells believers. Yeah, so um, this could be a longer answer, but I'm going to give you the short one because it's the nature of the Q&A we do on Fridays. The... And this is very, very common in Calvary chapels, right? That we will talk about the difference between the in versus the upon. Um, let me give you an answer that is a bit more broadly agreed on than, 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 a, than a very strongly charismatic answer, okay? This, this is consistent with the charismatic answer, but I want to answer this in a way that's a little bit more broadly agreed upon it amongst just evangelical Christians, I think. So the, the nature of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is that he does, you know, he, you could say he goes in to people in a sense, but their relationship with the Holy Spirit is, is tentative and it's usually based on empowering someone for service. So we read about this in scripture. I wonder if one of the verses that you gave us might be one of those passages. Let's take a look. Ezekiel 29.45. It's definitely not one of the verses I'm thinking of, but... Um, this just says, on the day, on that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Um, oh, well, maybe I went to the wrong spot. Oh, Ezekiel twenty-nine. You said forty-five, but it, there's only twenty-one verses. So it must have just been the wrong chapter there. Um, sorry about that. Okay, but let me just give you guys quick examples. Um, in the Old Testament, when they're building the temple, the spirit of the Lord was upon certain people 
as craftsmen. Like they were given skill and wisdom by God as craftsmen. So here we have an empowerment. Like imagine there's the relational Holy Spirit in you. And then there's the, there is something relational about it, but there's the empowerment. The, the main focus is empowerment, enablement. And that comes in the Old and New Testament. So they were enabled to build and do craft, be craftsmen to build the temple. Or you have um, Saul, who is given the Holy Spirit because he's anointed to be king of Israel. And then God's spirit departs from him because he's no longer called to be king of Israel. You might think this is a salvation issue. I think with Saul, you might you might think it's related to salvation. That's fine. But I think the main emphasis is him. He is um, He's king of Israel and now he's not king of Israel. God has rejected him. So this is, this is the relationship with the Holy Spirit that they have there. It's, it's empowerment for specific things. When Elijah goes and runs long distance, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And then he goes and runs long distance, you know, and he can, he can do that because of the power of the, of the spirit that can happen now, now as well. God does this with, with Philip, it seems in the book of Acts and he kind of takes him and transports him from one location to another. But what does Jesus do that changes this relationship? Or I would say it doesn't end the upon experience. God can empower you for a particular service or ministry or thing. I, I think I've experienced this in my life when I step into new ministry and I feel like I have new enablement to serve the Lord in a way I didn't think I could before. But there's a different thing. The, the Holy Spirit is in you, and this is the upon in distinction, and the New Testament talks about it like this. You are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And here, here we get the language of, of indwelling or sealing, right? Like in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, uh, let me see if I can find the, uh, the verse. Take, it, take you guys to it. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, this is a different thing. This is not empowerment. You're not being enabled to do something. You're being given a seal or like a like he's, he's giving you a proof of your future salvation in a relational aspect. Now the Holy Spirit's enabling you to have a just a pure relationship with God right now by the spirit we cry out Abba Father Romans 8 says so I would look at every believer is sealed with the spirit every believer has the spirit indwelling them as a permanent relational thing Jesus said to the disciples he's with you but he will be in you there's an in because now I have the Holy Spirit in me um, difference between old and new testament permanently but in addition to that God can empower you the Holy Spirit can come upon you for empowerment for particular ministry or service or boldness or something like that. We see that in the book of Acts when they pray for boldness. The Holy Spirit already came in Acts 2, but in Acts uh, 4, I believe it is, maybe 3, they, they pray for boldness after persecution and the Holy Spirit comes upon them again, gives them boldness. I hope that answers your question. Sometimes I'm like, I think back, was I confusing there? I hope not. All right, Elizabeth says, can you help me understand? Oh, I already did yours. Uh, Jordan Filler says, hi, Pastor Mike. What are your thoughts on Kenneth Hagin's The Authority of the Believer and other Christian spiritual authority concepts? If none, would you consider looking into it? Um, I'll consider looking into it, Jordan. I haven't dug into Kenneth Hagin's The Authority of the Believer. I've looked at some of Kenneth Hagin's stuff, but just like this much. And here's my tentative analysis. Kenneth Hagin, in general, along with um, Kenneth Copeland, who self-admittedly, he just says that he just copies Kenneth Hagin, that every night before he you know, goes to bed, they listen to Kenneth Hagin, and it's like he's preparing his notes for the next time he'll, he'll teach. 
he just teaches Kenneth Hagin stuff all the time. So Kenneth Copeland, at least he claims he's representing Kenneth Hagin's teaching. And if that's the case, then that's a problem. <laughs> um, but what I think about Kenneth Hagin, uh, from what little I've seen, and, and if his stuff is reflected in Kenneth Copeland, it's about making all these arbitrary rules about spiritual things, unbiblical, or I should say extra biblical rules about how how healing works and how glory it can be can be brought into an environment um like he'll say things like kenneth, uh, kenneth copeland says things like never curse your hair never curse your hair and you know he's like i don't look in the mirror and be like my hair is falling out you just put a curse on your hair don't do and i'm just like this is the dumbest thing i've ever heard <laughs> and i think every christian should agree this is folly this is folly this is a cartoon image reflection of true christianity and amongst those who push healing and push miracles and push not in a biblically i believe in these things lord i pray for these things i, I trust you for these things not like that but they push it like it's going to become a systematized organized 10-step process of how to how to bring glory in the room how to break the strongholds and they turn it into like an extra biblical format that to me i think is a, is a major problem my sense of Kenneth Hagin is that he does this a lot, right? Is a lot that he'll give you like the seven secrets of prayer um, and things like that, that I think are often just made up. There's my honest and straightforward opinion about it um, and why I would generally avoid those guys. Ricardo Sierra has a question. Are angels immortal? If not, does that mean demons might have a chance to defeat them or some in a war i ask because sometimes i see paintings of angels versus demons that's a good question ricardo i i wonder i wonder about this um are they immortal well they they certainly seem um i mean i, I don't know of any statement of an angel dying in scripture like ceasing to exist in that sense there is a judgment that comes uh some people think psalm 81 is about is about the sort of um you would think of them as angelic beings, but like Elo, Elohim. This is this is getting in the weeds now, theologically speaking here. But if, if you have that like that divine council worldview approach to Psalm eighty-one, then you would think that there's like some kind of there's some kind of death, like men that they're going to experience. But then that may not be uh, an, a non-existence, annihilation in that sense, because men that would be now a debate about annihilationism. So I'm going to say that my impression with angels is that they're they just are immortal. And it's more about what state they're in. Um, that that seems to be the issue to me is more about what state they're in. But I'm but I'm gonna have to answer that pretty tentatively because I just haven't really I haven't really asked that question and then dug into scripture. And sometimes you pass over verses that might might have implications about things like this. Um, I'm inclined to think they're, they're yeah that they're immortal. It doesn't mean that they can't be defeated in some sense. All right, Justin. Harcharik says, Hi, Pastor Mike. I was wondering why there are times where Jesus tells people not to talk about him. Thank you. And you mentioned some verses here. And we do have lots of verses in the scripture that talk about this. You mentioned Matthew 8, 4, 9, 30, and 12, 16. Um, and then you also said you and your team have been a, a huge blessing to me. And that's great, Justin. Thanks, man. Like, that's awesome. That's why we do it. <laughs> so, um, why is it Jesus tells people, like, many times, he's like, don't tell anyone about me. Um, and, and I think that, well, let's build a couple clues here so we can understand what's happening. Um, first off, Jesus doesn't always do this. 
He does it frequently, but he does it temporarily. And as you progress, like if you laid out a gospel and here you've got the beginning of the gospel and here you've got the end, which is probably reversed to you. But anyway, let's just say it's Hebrew because they go the other way. Um, so the beginning of the gospel and the end, towards the beginning, there's more silence demanded by Jesus. And towards the end, there's less and less and less until finally at the end, he's like, go and tell the world, go and proclaim the stuff I've told you, you know, quietly go and shout on the rooftops and all this stuff. So there's a progression. It's a temporary silencing. We also have examples of consequences for when they do speak about Jesus's miracles publicly. So Jesus does a miracle and he's like, hey, don't tell anyone. And that guy goes and tells everybody. And then so many people crowd Jesus trying to force their way to the miracle worker that he ends up not being able to do anything else. And he has to just leave the area because it becomes too, like maybe too hostile, maybe just too riotous of an environment. So that could be one reason, right? To avoid the rioting. Another issue is that when they do tell everyone about Jesus and what he's doing and his claims, like being the son of David, immediately the crucifixion happens. So in Mark, we see this. Mark, Jesus is like, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. And then all of a sudden it shifts. When he heads to Jerusalem in the gospel of Mark, and it's, he's going to be crucified. And he's on his way there. A man calls him son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he heals this blind man. And then, shockingly, total change of change of habit in Mark. He lets the blind man follow him. He doesn't say, don't tell anyone, go away. He lets the now seeing man follow him, who is going to be telling everyone he's the son of David. The fact that he healed me when I called him that proves that he's the Messiah, the son of David. Then he goes into Jerusalem on a donkey, which in their culture is a clear indication that he's claiming to be son of David, right? The, the Messiah. And what happens next? Boom, he's crucified. So Jesus was just making sure the timing of the crucifixion happened at the right moment and that his ministry could continue, but without getting so much attention, negative attention, that he had to like have a one month ministry and get crucified. Instead, he could have the three year ministry and get crucified. So there you go. There's some of the examples. Now, there's also a picture there in that's drawn that's kind of like metaphorical, I think, that Israel has their Messiah in their midst and they don't see it and they don't get it. And now that's a picture of a larger issue that's happening with the people. They have Christ right there and they're not understanding. Um, Casey Mills says, if God's will is always done in heaven, was Satan's, Satan's rebellion God's will? Thanks from Australia. Well, hello, Australia. The land down under. You know, I wonder if, if when they made the maps, if Australia, we just called that area the north, would, would I be in the land down under? <laughs> These are things I think about it. Seems kind of arbitrary to me. Um, all right. The, uh, the issue here is, um, if God's will is always done, which I would say is in a sense, always done, then isn't Satan, Satan's rebellion, God's will. And I think we have to just qualify that in a sense. Um, so God's will ultimately, let's, let's say we look at God's will as God's ultimate plan for all things. And you know, there's things that he's going to, he's going to make happen throughout history. And then there's things that he will allow to happen throughout history because, and here's my quick answer on this. It's not only God's will that we serve him and love him and follow him. It's also his will that we have a will that allows us to choose that. So an example could be with kids. You tell your kid, go clean your room. Now you could walk over there, grab their arms. You could take them into the room and you could pick that up, put that over, pick that up. Put it. But you're, you're like, you know, you don't want that kind of relationship with your kid, not just because it's hostile. That's part of the reason, but also because it's so pathetic, right? You want... You want them to make good choices. So as a parent, you're always doing this. You're, 
you're making rules of what they can and can't do, but you're also giving them orders or commands or policies, and they're supposed to make good decisions. And you realize this is part of them growing up. And that even if they make a bad choice, it was your will that they actually had a choice to make. And you may have maybe suffer consequences for the choices they make, but part of your will was that they would have a choice at all. This seems really easy to me to answer. God's will, God's desire is that beings in this in this you know created universe he's made that we have a real decision to make about whether we will worship God or reject God and he doesn't want us or will us to make the choice to reject him but he does will us to make a choice and he lets us live with that decision and this is the same thing with Satan Satan chose to rebel against God um, and that was part of his will in fact the the Old Testament account of this is where Satan's like, I will do this. I will ascend to the heaven. I will be like God. I will this. I will that. And it all stems from his will and his desire. And I think that that explains it. Um, Jacob Duncan has a question. says, what are some ways God disciplines us? As it's said in Hebrews, how do we know if he's disciplining? Uh, can he discipline through physical or psychological ailments? So Hebrews tells us... Um, Let's just go to the passage real quick because I think that um, it'll help to refresh our minds on it. Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured, um, sin endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. I think he means that you guys haven't been, your particular group he's writing to weren't martyred, weren't actually martyred uh, in their resistance of sin yet. Uh, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and, ch and chastises every son whom he receives. This kind of connects to the Old Testament idea that in Proverbs it says, if you don't discipline your kids, you hate them. Like you, you, you despise them. And, and this is not just speaking about you emotionally. It's speaking about you cause them great harm because... Your foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Well, as a Christian, I do need discipline. What could it be? Um, there is a there is a um, connection to the verses prior that makes me think that this discipline could be a pretty wide scope. So consider him who endured such uh, from sinners hostility against himself. So the context leading into this don't despise discipline is getting hostility coming from non-believers. That's what Jesus experienced, right? And then. That way you won't grow faint-hearted. And he's saying, hey, you haven't even suffered to the shedding of blood yet. You haven't been beaten to the blood, shedding of blood or killed yet. So the the response that I would have is discipline here could be a very broad thing. It might be like you're actually being punished because of sins you've committed. But it could also be discipline where it's just like God allows you to go through hardship to refine you. Uh, First Peter talks about this. It says that the the, the trials you suffer, that they're going to bring out perseverance and character and hope, that this is a progressive transformation that's taking place in you. If you think about it in your life, this is very true. The things you've gone through that were the hardest were generally the things that were the most character building as well. And it's just, it's weird that that's how life works, but it does. The worst things you've gone through have done probably, in most, not every case, I'm sure, but in many cases they've done the most for building your character in the greatest ways so this discipline could be any kind of suffering any kind of suffering so could it be psychological what if you're, you're you go to pray and you're suddenly impressed with how god feels and hurts because of your sin and you're just suddenly aware of the the weight of the wickedness of your sin and you see it like you've never seen it before 
could that be God's like discipline? Well, yeah. I mean, because some kids, they're, all they needed is just a glance from their parent going, I'm really disappointed. And that was like this radical discipline for them. And other kids, it's like they need to be grounded in respect. So it could be any kind of suffering or hardship or difficulty that provokes character growth, maybe a result of sin, maybe just a result of God wanting to grow our character. So I, I'm just saying Hebrews 12 is very broad. The main uh, counsel we have here is to know that it is God's love and he still receives you when you're disciplined, when you're going through hardship as a Christian, God still receives you. This is not him casting you out. This is him loving you. He disciplines those he loves. So don't be weary, right? And don't regard it lightly. These things are important and we should, uh, we should have hope. Let's go to the next question. Uh, number nine, um, Rosie A says, what does someone need to believe for you to be to consider them your brother or sister in Christ? Um, this is, um, I, I mean, I should probably have a list right off the top of my head, but let me just give you some of the core issues in Christianity. If I'm going to consider them my brother or sister in Christ, then they need to be in Christ. And, and Christ is not just an idea. Christ is the second person of, of the Trinity. Christ is God with us. So they need to believe that Jesus really existed, that he really did live a perfect life, that he really did die on the cross and then rise again from the dead, and that he paid the price for my sins, and that by just trusting in him, by believing in him, I am washed and clean and brought into the family of God. So they need to believe in like the identity and the work of Christ, like who he is and what he did. Now, there's obviously some areas that it becomes slightly a gray area. Like what if, what if someone says, well, I believe in Jesus did all that stuff, but I don't really think that his conversation with Nicodemus really happened. I think John made that up. And then I'm like, okay, I, I still see them as my brother, my sister, but I don't, I don't think that's healthy. I think that's bad. I think that's, they haven't compromised a core issue, but there are messing with stuff. <laughs> and so there's times where somebody's doctrines are like, um, they're, they're questionable. And I don't know if I should call that Christian or non-Christian, in which case I just have to say, I don't know. That's scary to me. And there's times where it's obvious. So if someone says, well, Jesus never existed, obviously they're, not, but I'm a Christian. I'll be like, no, you're not. Like, that's not what Christianity is. If they say, um, I believe Jesus died and rose again, but I'm going to live my own life the way I want. I'm not going to submit to his Lordship. Well, then I'll go, well, the demons believe in tremble James too. You know, this, you're not really a Christian. And if they say they trust in Christ, they, they, maybe they, maybe they have questions about inerrancy of scripture. Maybe they have problems with, um, uh, maybe they, they have a different view of like gender roles and stuff like that. I wouldn't call those things, you know, things you have to have. The truth is that all of us have probably got things wrong. You probably have a number of things you believe that are not true. But Christianity ultimately, this is huge, is based on a relationship with God through Jesus. And so how do you test the relationship? Well, you, you could hear them talk about the Jesus they have a relationship with. And if they describe him in ways that are not true, then you can rightly question that. Well, he didn't really rise from the dead. Well, you, you don't know my, my risen savior. Like, who are you even having a relationship with right now? That's one way of thinking about it. All right, let's look at the next question. This comes from C. Bates. Mike, could you comment on Matthew 13, 44 and 45? Most seem to feel that the merchant is a man and the pearl slash treasure is Christ. But in context, I seem to see the opposite. Um, I, you know what? I've gone back and forth on this, 
on this parable. We're going to read through it here. The parable... Not that one. Um, let me see. Matthew 13 is a long chapter. Okay, the parable of the pearl of great value. Was that the one? I'll read two of these together. I'll read these two together. They do kind of go together, these two. Forgive my allergies here. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Oh, I'll give it to you too. Is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Okay, let's take the next one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in, a search of, in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's the, the reason why we read these together is because there's commonalities, right? There's a, there's a person, there's a, um, a valuable thing, and the person gives up everything they've got. They sell everything they have in order to buy and get that valuable thing. Now, those who would say that the person is you and the valuable thing is Jesus, he's the pearl of great price. He is the treasure in a field. Um, they would say, you are, you're not buying your salvation, right? Because this is a parable. We have clear teaching in scripture that Jesus buys your salvation. So you're, if you want to use that with, do, the, do that with the parable, you're using a story, a parable to conflict with clear theological teaching in the, in the scripture. But Jesus does say, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Um, he basically says, you got to lose the world. So the selling all that you have could be a reference to making a decision that you decide Jesus is more valuable than all that you have in this life and that you would give it all as a cost of following and knowing him, even though he's the one who actually purchases your salvation. Um, the other view would be that Jesus is the person. You know, the, mind, the man finds a treasure in a field and the man finds a pearl of great price and that's, that's you. He sells all that he has. That's Jesus giving up his glory, uh, setting it aside, and then coming as a human, living our, our life, bearing our sin, dying on the cross. That's all he had, gave it all, rising from the dead and purchasing us. The pushback against that view is it implies that we are, in fact, quite valuable. <laughs> and then they'd say, well, you know, Christians, we're, 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 our, our righteousness is filthy rags. Yeah, that's true, but we are still made in the image of God. We do still have value. Christ, you know, humans have incredible value. On the Christian worldview, humans do have amazing value. We really do, but we're not righteous. And if we don't think of the purchasing and the value and stuff as related to our personal righteousness, then I don't think that's a problem to approach the Proverbs that way. Now let's look at it in slightly more detail. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. He finds it and he just, he covers it up. Then he goes and he sells all he has and he buys the whole field. This works better if Jesus is the man. Because he doesn't just buy the pearl, for instance. He buys the field. And so Jesus is like those is like the one who goes into the world and he sees those who will trust in him. And he goes and he buys the whole field. He dies for the world. He pays for everybody. He buys the universe even. And in, in that, he redeems us. He saves those who will trust in him. And so he buys the field to get the treasure. And then that would make a lot of sense if the treasure is us. Then you have... Um, and I don't know how to do that. If Jesus is the, is the treasure, how is it that I'm buying the field? And I feel like it, we have a harder time taking the different elements of the parable and interpreting them. In verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. And that one seems more flexible. It could go either way. I think I lean towards Jesus being the merchant, Jesus being the man who buys, who buys 
the treasure, sells all he has with great joy, with, with the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And that seems a lot like that parable there. Um, but here's why perhaps it looks like it could go either way. Because Jesus does buy you, but then he calls you to give all you have to come follow him. So there is a sense in which the parables kind of could work both ways because there is a reflection of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that he calls us to take up our cross and sacrifice as well for the sake of the kingdom. So there you go. There's my, there's my thoughts. Um, the next question comes from, I just lost my spot there. Um, I skipped around. Okay. Casey Mills is God always his will in heaven. Okay. Here we are. Derek Beeler. This is question number 11 who says, you were in American gospel too. What do you think of the final 10 minutes teaching God's whole purpose for everything is his own glory. And we're merely incidental to that. So I was in American gospel too. And it was, it was a fun experience and they were very patient with me. I was like super nervous <laughs> doing it when Brandon Kimber was very patient with me, uh, doing the filming. But, um, uh, I, I think that American gospel too, um, like I think American gospel one was, was, uh, really good like really, really good. And it was so well edited and so well put together. Um, I think that American Gospel 2, I would have a couple you know, concerns about it that, let me see, here's, it's a mixed bag because it's remarkably good in many ways. It's very important and it's covering issues that are very, very needing to be covered, right? Progressive Christianity stuff. There's just a modern apostasy that's going on and American gospel is covering a lot of that. But the areas where I would pull back a bit is in how strongly the particulars of Calvinism are taught and presented, which I, again, I don't agree with um, the, well, I mean, I agree with Calvinists on so many things, but not on the particulars of Calvinism. And so th that was presented very strongly as the solution. And, and in a sense, you, you didn't present, you know, biblical Christianity as the solution to this sort of apostate stuff that's going on. Instead, it was presented as Calvinism is the solution to that apostate stuff. And I just don't agree with that particular presentation. There's a truth that's there. It's just stretched too thin. <laughs> and the other thing is that the way it was edited, American Gospel 2, it was a little harder to follow the arguments, just structurally. I felt like it was a little more difficult to follow the arguments um, for what it's worth, that editing. It just, it, it's, it, I can't imagine the challenge. I couldn't do it. Like just, you take all the footage and then you try to figure out how to put it together. Like I couldn't do that. Um, so that was a concern. The last 10 minutes about it being for God, everything being for God's glory and were incidental. As I remember, I watched it quite a while ago. My thoughts on that were that that is, there's a truth in that, but it's not the whole story. Um, I think that for instance, it, yeah, it's all God's glory. We're incident, but we're incidental to God's glory would imply, um, it would perhaps rob some of the wonderfulness that God has in store. And he delights in his children. He delights in us. That is true. Um, now, I don't want to be narcissistic and think that life is about me. It's not. And, and, and I actually kind of want to ask people, this is a I was thinking about this the other day. If I could get progressive Christians into a room and just ask him an honest question, that's not a battle, right? I would just want to ask them, like, is, is God more important than you? Like, that's the question I want them to wrestle with. Because to me, this is like the easiest thing in the world. Yeah, God's more important than me, obviously. Like, if it comes, you know, to like God's agendas versus mine, his win. God's plans versus mine, his win. God's um, 
purposes, his, his desires for the world, his desires for my life versus mine, he wins. But I feel like that's not true on progressive Christianity. I don't think that's true. I think God becomes a tool for my desires. Uh, and, and so I, I, I like that. I think that it confronts that issue. But if I remember correctly at the end of the film, I think it stretches that a little too thin. And it, 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 sometimes what we, we can, when we're talking about God's glory, it can almost turn into like, you know, we will, we will show how much we glorify God by like bashing on mankind. And there's, and sometimes mankind deserves to be bashed on, right? All of a sudden falling short and there's a truth that's there, but that's not the whole story, right? We are made in his image and there's, there's something very valuable there. Anyway, I'm just rambling. So I'll move on. Loretta Taylor says, does the integrity of our faith need Adam and Eve to be literal historical people? Some say the account of Adam and Eve is a myth to a story to teach us theological and moral truth. Um, <clears throat> Does the integrity of our faith need Adam and Eve to be literal his historical people? Let me say this. There, there's, there are ways of, when you say integrity, you know what I think of? I think of Star Trek. When I was a kid, it was always like, whole integrity is down to 73%, Captain. You know? And they'd always have this percentage attached to the whole integrity um, or you know that, that kind of thing. So that was about the, the ship, you know, how much integrity... And here's the question is, how much can you compromise the integrity of Christian truths before the ship implodes, before it's gone? And I would answer this one in all honesty. Um, I think if you want to be consistent as a Christian, you're going to believe in Adam and Eve as historical people. I think that that's true. However, if you believe that if for whatever reason, if you errantly, if you wrongly believe that Adam and Eve are not actual historical individuals, then you can still be a Christian. You just have an inconsistency. Your whole integrity has been compromised, but I don't think to the point where the ship implodes. Because I don't think the Christian faith, let me put it this way, I don't think salvation depends on believing everything that's true about Christianity and the Bible. I think salvation depends on your relationship with Jesus and if you believe in him and his death and resurrection. And that you can be a crippled Christian who believes in the death and resurrection of Christ, who is turned from sin and trusted in your Savior, believes in him truly and really, believes in God, believes in Christ, who also thinks that the Bible's full of a bunch of misinformation and full of a bunch of other stuff, and yet you just confusingly, self-contradictorily, <laughs> you think that the, that that was just how God had to get the message out to us through fallible humans and da-da-da-da, and I think you're wrong about all that, but I still would think you're a Christian. I think you're just crippled. I think your your whole integrity has been compromised to an extent. So there's my uh, my analysis of that. Yeah. Um, now, as far as Adam and Eve being historical, not only do we have Genesis, but we also have the New Testament that teaches about them. Jesus, who mentions them, and we look at the real details. Look carefully at the passages where even the New Testament mentions mentions Adam and Eve. They they are connecting them to real history. So, uh, how long ago was that? Um, how you know how thorough are the genealogies in Genesis? All that is are other questions, but it, just talking about the historical nature of Adam and Eve. Yeah. Number thirteen, A. D. Chan says, if God's good and perfect, how can He ever be jealous or angry? Since both jealousy and anger are sins of the flesh. And you also asked for more cat cam. Well, we have no cat available at the moment for the cat cam, but uh, let me see. She was. Yeah, earlier, Mika, the one who usually doesn't appear on screen, she was up on top of my bookcase because they climb up there. And she kept rubbing on this picture of me and my wife. And I was like expecting it to fall off the bookcase at any moment. But she stopped. Um, so yes, if the cat arrives, I will turn on the cat cam. 
but I don't do pre-recorded cat footage. It's like all real. It's, I'm real with y'all. This is authentic cat footage. Okay, so let's answer the question. If God's good and perfect, how can he ever be jealous or angry? And catch the nuance here. A.D. Chan's not just saying, because jealousy and angry are bad. He actually bases this on scripture because in scripture, jealousy and anger are part of the flesh. They're sins of the flesh. Let's look at that passage. I don't want to miss this. I, I feel like if you ask this question, a lot of guys would just miss your logic. Well, here's your logic. Let's, let's, let's understand it. Then we'll respond. Um, these are the works of the flesh. And these are all sinful things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So, how is it that God can be jealous? I mean, scripture says he's jealous, like in many places, it says that God is jealous. This is where Oprah Winfrey got off the bus, in a sense. Well, she got off the bus a long time ago, as, a, as far as Christianity is concerned. Um, but she publicly said that she just couldn't tolerate the idea of a, of a God who was jealous, because that's so petty. So, what is it, though, about jealousy and anger, these two issues that you brought up, that we need to understand a little more better, a little bit in more detail. And that would be that jealousy is a sin and it's listed as a sin, but that doesn't mean that it is always a sin. It doesn't mean it's always a sin. Anger is listed as a sin, but it doesn't mean that it is always a sin. Let me take you to a passage that talks about this. Ephesians 4.26. In Ephesians 4.26, same author, Paul. So we understand when he says anger is, you know, outbursts of wrath, anger, these things are sinful. He doesn't mean in every situation. Here he says, be angry and do not sin. In Ephesians 4.26, so he thinks you can actually be angry but not sin. See, there is such a thing as righteous anger, righteous jealousy. Those things are appropriate. If a, if a man is lusting after a girl and it's not his wife and she becomes the girlfriend of some other guy or gets engaged to some other guy and he's jealous and he's like, I, oh, I wanted her. That was her. And he's jealous. That's sinful jealousy. But let's suppose you're married and that your spouse, you find, has been texting like lovey-dovey texts between her or him and somebody else. And you become jealous. Hey, your love belongs to me. That's a proper jealousy. This is actually a function of love, not of selfish jealousy, sinful jealousy. This is a proper jealousy. right? A husband who's been cheated on has a jealousy about the person who his wife cheated on him with. And that's appropriate. This is right. Now, in his anger, don't sin. In your jealousy here, in your right jealousy, don't sin. But not all jealousy is bad. Not all jealousy is bad. Most of it is. <laughs> Most of it's bad, but not in every circumstance. And God is perfect and holy. And let me say this. You, you kind of know this. You know that not all of your anger has been bad in your life. Like there's been times where you were angry and you were right to be angry. You were entirely right. Now, you were at the same time probably tempted to sin in your anger. And maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Maybe it was you, you expressed it in the proper fashion and you honored God. But God is perfect and holy. So when he's jealous, when he's angry, when he's wrathful, it is always right and appropriate. It is always good. So th that's the answer. Um, God is good and perfect, which is why he has perfect jealousy and perfect anger. There are sins of the flesh and us being fallen humans, they're especially dangerous for us because we so quickly turn our anger or even, even right jealousy into sin. That never happens with God. This is when James talks about, in James 1, it says like that the wrath of God is good, but it mentions the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? My, my wrath, my righteous indignation tends to lead me into sin, 
But God's wrath, his punishment of sin is always appropriate, proportional, and correct, whether, whether people want to admit that or not. That would be the only philosophically or biblically consistent way to view things, is that God is perfect, including in his jealousy. Number 14, Thomas Brownlee says, can you explain how you understand John 20, 23? I've read several commentaries on this verse and still have difficulty rightly understanding it. Well, let's look at it together. Jesus says of the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, there are some, um, I don't know if I have a translation ready that would mention this. Let me just look at the NASB. Yeah, th this this adds a different feel to them. Okay, notice the tense. If you forgive the sins of any in the ESV, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And that could imply that your act of withholding forgiveness or forgiving them, that that gives them forgiveness. So I'll come to what we do with this in a second, but let's just understand the tense. The NASB gives you a different flavor because in the Greek, there's a different flavor. It's as if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been, past tense, forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been, past tense, retained. And then this would put them, so the question is, am I causing, like if you're the, the disciple who's receiving this, if say you're Peter, am I causing you to be forgiven? Or am I simply declaring what has already happened? I'm given permission to declare what's already happened. Um, and that would be another way of looking at it. So, the NASB here actually has a note, this little number one right there, if, if I could put it on screen for you, which I can't. The note says, in other words, having previously been forgiven. If you forget the, the sins of any, their sins have previously been forgiven. So there's like a tense issue that may be going on here. You can see the difference between the ESV and the New American Standard Bible. And I remember having studied that when I went through John a long time ago. Not online, just teaching youth. Um, the other issue is this, is that the main thing that we see at the end of the gospels is, and this gives you context, is that disciples are now going to, they're now going to understand the gospel. They understand Jesus' death and resurrection. They fully get it. And now they're going to teach it to the world. They're about to, in the, in the book of Acts, you know, not too long after, they're going to be telling everyone about forgiveness through Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is giving them authority to proclaim that in Christ, they can be forgiven. And if they reject Christ, they will not be forgiven. So this is not a decisive thing. This is not the disciples getting permission to decide who is forgiven and who's not. It would then be, and this is my view, them being told, yes, I'm giving you the authority to go and tell people about the forgiveness and the lack of forgiveness that is laid out in heaven for them based upon my death and resurrection and their response of faith. So then as they went out to the world, I mean, imagine this is the biggest thing in the world to tell someone, if you turn to trust in Christ, you're forgiven. If you don't, you're not. I, I can't do that on my authority. Jesus gives them the authority to be the ones proclaiming this gospel to the world. And that's how I would view it. And I think that that would be consistent with the Greek. All right, next question. This is from Kaisu Mer... Ooh, I'm going to butcher your last name, Kaisu. Uh, Merskaranta? Merskaranta? Uh, greetings from Finland. Um, hello, Finland. Good to, good to hear from you. Uh, how can I learn to see God as a loving father? I'm afraid and sometimes I feel that God is indifferent and impatient with me. Am I going to make it to heaven? Well, you trust in Christ, Kaisu. Like, Jesus is real. You just, you trust in him. You call on him. 
you turn from from your selfish, sinful life of I'm going to do my own thing apart from you to God, I depend on you, I rely on you, Jesus, I need you. You just trust him. He died and rose for you. And yeah, that's it. Then, then the transformation is going to start to take place as the Holy Spirit works in your life. But I think I understand the issue here. Um, I want you to, I hope I can explain this well right now. I want you to think about your life and the way that you evaluate God and think about your picture of God, how you feel about God, how you feel about God's feelings towards you. So just be aware of that. Just kind of sense, how am I feeling about God's feelings towards me? And then I want you to now look into your own self, your feelings in a sense. This is not new age, I promise, guys. I'm trying to, it's a self-evaluation thing. Look into your feelings and ask yourself, are these feelings based on what God has told me about himself in scripture? Or are they based on something else? Am I projecting thoughts and feelings onto God that are not coming from what he's told me and revealed to me? that are really coming from my own anxieties, my own fears, my insecurities, where I'm projecting my insecurities on them. Now, I, I've actually had a friend I can think of who constantly thought I was mad at them. And they did this with lots of people, but they just were like, are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? And then they wouldn't like re talk to me for a while and they'd be like, are you upset with me? And they kept projecting their fears onto me. And this of course made the relationship you know, difficult. But not because I was actually mad. I just thought it was silly. <laughs> like, that's silly. Like, I'm not. Like, you don't know me very well. If you think I'm mad at you for no reason, like, then you don't know me very well. Um, if you understood me better, then you'd be a lot more comfortable talking with me, you know, calling me, getting together. Well, that's the same, that same thing can happen with Christians. Where we, we project our, our anxieties, our fears, our insecurities onto God. And we're not taking him at his word. And since I want to say, look at his word, I, I used to feel this way when I was young. I'd be like, I'd sin. And, and when I first got saved for years, I would sin. And then I would think, oh, I'm, I'm not really close to God right now. I can't really pray. I can't really draw near to God. And the thing I needed was, it's like, I needed God to like, through his spirit, like show me, I still love you. I still care about you. So I would go to church and it would be a time of worship and I'd hear the word. And then I felt, okay, he loves me. We're okay. We're okay. Like I'm back right with the Lord. And it, I, I kept going through this cycle until I studied two things, the nature of the cross and Ephesians chapter one. And when I looked at those two things, I realized that no matter how I feel, God's love for me is continual and constant and it's proven through the cross. If I want to know how God feels about me while I'm at my lowest, I see the cross and God's love for us while we were still sinners Christ died for the ungodly. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 5, 8. This is what you need to do. You need to filter God and you're not filter God, but you filter your feelings about God through scriptures like this. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for you while you were a sinner. Now, if he loved you at your lowest, why are you thinking he stopped loving you? How can you see God as a loving father? You just take him at his word and you see that the, that God so loved the world, he gave his son, gave his son. And that's you. He loved you. He so loved you, right? Kaisu, forgive me if I pronounced your name wrong. He so loved you that he gave his son for you. How do you see him as a loving father? You just soak up what scripture has taught you about God. That's all. And you realize that those insecurities you project on the Lord, which is understandable. I've done it too. That that was just me working through my issues 
And as I take him at his word, I can come boldly to the throne of grace where I can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. So I hope that that helps. Nathaniel, question number 16. Nathaniel says, any books you recommend for those courting and preparing for marriage, if not any advice? Um, for courting and preparing you for marriage? I, you know, I don't really read very many of these marriage books. Like, this is a problem when it comes to recommending them. Um, in my view, I usually read them and I'm usually like, this is fluff. It feels like so much fluff. It feels like they're trying so hard to make me like them that they won't just say stuff. You know, <laughs> to say how it is. Um so, yeah, I don't really have a particular book for courting that I would recommend. I'm sure there's good ones out there. There's got to be. I just don't know what they are. I will say this. Um, I thought the um, – oh, man, there was one book that was it – was, it was not fantastic, but it was helpful. Love and Respect. There's a book called Love and Respect. I don't think it's the most amazing thing ever, but I thought it was helpful. I thought that it approached some heart, some serious issues that are at the heart of male-female marriage relationship, and it dealt with them and helped unpack them in ways that I think are important, partly because the authors did base it off of the commands in Scripture to husbands and wives, and these are sort of built off of that. So there's some validity there. So anyway, there's, there's one book I would at least tentatively recommend people to check out. I also have a teaching for husbands and wives. I have a teaching for husbands and we'll we'll put it in the chat for you guys if, if one of the mods can do that if they haven't already. And so one is about husbands. If you just type Mike Winger husbands, it should pop right up. Mike Winger wives. There's a teaching based on scripture for each of those um, relationship positions. And I'm absolutely behind it because I think it's very biblical and I think it's very helpful. So Nathaniel, that, that's my that's my thought. My advice is, um, I'll throw out one piece of advice. When you get into a relationship, it tends to bring out your insecurities and your selfishness. And you find that you wanted, you, you wanted another person, but it's very easy to want them for you. Whereas marriage is about giving. Marriage is about choosing a person to give to. Not a person who fills all my needs and takes care of my insecurities, but a person who I will bless and love and choose to love whether they whether I like it or not whether they're treating me well or not and when you look at it like that it changes things um, so there's there's a piece of advice number 17 nothing much has a question if someone passes away is it wrong to pray for their salvation this would not be uh, get them out of purgatory this would just be in a god you knew back then that I would pray this sort of way um I think in the way you're describing nothing much, I don't think that it's like an immoral thing to, you know, because you're, you're basically saying, um, you know, retroactively, Lord, you knew I was going to pray for this person now. So I'm hoping that you already did something in response to these prayers. And I, I don't think there's anything immoral about that. You're not, it's not like a, you're talking about people getting saved after they've passed away, that kind of thing. So I also think that I understand the compelling nature of wanting to pray for somebody after they've died, wanting to influence their eternity after they've already made all their choices on earth. And I get the desire that's there, but I, I also don't think that we have like a, a biblical like permission to ultimately do that. And so there's my answer is the way you describe it. I wouldn't say it's immoral. I don't, I don't know if that, if, if that matters to the Lord or not, God knows it's his heart, his desire, his knowledge of your prayers and all that. So the Lord knows, uh, maybe it does matter in that regard, but it would be a retroactive thing time-wise. 
uh, in your version. All right, number 18, Esoptron says, Hi, Pastor Mike, in your opinion, what are the gods of Egypt in Exodus 12? The options seem to be rulers, idols, demons, or actual gods. Thanks and God bless. Ooh, let's check it out. Exodus 12. I... Let me find the exact verse where he mentions, I think he's talking about executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. Um, ooh, this might be hard to find. Um, I don't want to read the whole chapter right now if I can avoid it. Exodus 12, 12? Yeah, there we go. Exodus 12, 12. So he's talking about the Passover. And in the this is the final of the plague of the, all the 10 plagues on Egypt. And he's going to go through and strike the firstborn unless they do this Passover ceremony that is a total picture of Christ who is God's firstborn in, in place of us. But... But then he describes how he's going to pass through the land, right? As though he'll pass over those who have the blood on the doorpost and lentil and they're, and he's going to pass over them. But verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So the gods of Egypt um, may relate to, and I think there's a lot of validity here, um, the imagine this the, from the perspective of the Egyptians, there are things the Egyptians are worshiping. Those in anybody's language, those are the gods of Egypt. Whether those beings are actual gods, whether they exist or not, whether they're demons, I'm going to come to that in a second. But they're definitely the gods of Egypt, right? So like Dagon would be, and he wasn't an Egyptian one, I don't think, but Dagon would be like this fish head god. Now, is there actually a fish head god somewhere, you know, invisibly or something like that called Dagon? No, I don't think so. But Dagon exists, at least in the minds of the people and the culture of the people, the gods of Egypt. So I could talk about Thor. He's like a, you know, Roman god or whatever. Um, and uh, is it Roman? Was Thor Roman? Now I'm blinking on that. I feel like he wasn't Roman. Zeus. I think Zeus was Roman. I know, I'm confused. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, so yeah, there's gods of Egypt. Now, each of the plagues, you know, he strikes the Nile River. Well, they worshiped the Nile River. They deified. They had a, a god they worshiped that was related to the Nile River. The gnats, the frogs, the the different things that were happening, the darkness, right? They worship the sun god, Ra, and they get darkness on the land. So God is exercising judgment on the gods of Egypt. The sense that we're getting in Exodus is that he's showing them to be powerless. God's like, I control the Nile. This is the crazy thing about the monotheistic God of Israel is that the Egyptians would have been like, we have our gods, you got your gods. Our gods are localized over here. Yours are over there. And then here comes the God of Israel. Who's like, I'm the one who created all things. Genesis one, everything. I control it all. I created it all. And all your gods are petty and powerless and dumb and mute. And I control the Nile and I control the gnats and I control the frogs and I can control the sky and the darkness. And the Egyptians also worshiped the firstborn of Pharaoh as a god they deified their pharaohs and so he's finally executing judgment on pharaoh as a god himself that's what i see happening there in exodus 12 all the plagues are doing that now the next question are there gods behind the gods what is the entity that might be behind ra well we know that in the new testament paul ascribes behind idols is demons and i don't know if i could find the passage right now 1 Corinthians 10.20, this isn't because I have every verse memorized. This is because I'm using Logos Bible software and I just searched. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, he says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. 
I don't want you to be participants with demons. So he, he's actually answering the question, are idols anything? Is there anything behind an idol? You know, the food that's offered to idols, what is it offered to really? It's just a piece of wood. And he goes, no, no, no. But behind it is a demon. Now, demons wouldn't be like raw. So what, what a demon would be is impersonating gods. So there isn't like, okay, if someone's worshiping some false god, let's someone's worshiping Ra. There, there isn't a demon that has power over the sun that brings the sun up and down every day. There isn't that demon. There's a demon impersonating something that does that, right? The demon's just a demon. So that's that's my general view. Um, and others, some, some others would disagree, but there's my answer in full. 19, J, J. Parker I says, or J. Parker says, <laughs> I shared your passion project with the elders of my church. They thought it was nitpicking. How do I decide to leave? Long long history with these people seem to be moving hyper charismatic. Um, I have to admit, I'm shocked that someone thinks that my my whole passion project is nitpicking. Um, if we wanted to nitpick, we could. <laughs> that was not nitpicking. Um, yeah, that's so sad. I'm so sorry to hear that, uh, Jay Parker. God give you wisdom. I, I honestly, I just pray that God helps you love these people, to love them and care for them deeply, uh, even if they're just completely off or wrong and making bad decisions. You said, how do I decide to leave? I don't think I know enough about your situation. to get. It is dangerous for me to give you counsel right now. Like as, a, as a, I care about you, right? And I don't really know your life. And I don't know when you say they're going hyper charismatic, like I don't really know what that means in, in reality. I just know, um, don't, if, if you're going to leave, don't leave in bitterness, don't leave in anger, don't leave in any of that. Leave only because it's a principled decision you're making to honor and serve the Lord. And every step you take from now till then is not to gossip or slander or to tear down. Um, even if you decide you have to speak up, you have to speak publicly or openly about issues God give you wisdom in that, but just don't let it be motivated out of the flesh. I say walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, whatever decisions you're making now. God give you wisdom. I don't know the right answer to this question. Um, it is very concerning what you what you suggest seem like there's symptoms of, of major issues that are coming your way in your fellowship. And I'm very, very sorry to hear that. God give you wisdom. Should you stay and try to have an impact or should you leave? And if you do, how loudly should you do it? Uh, God give you wisdom, brother. Or sister. Number 20, Jatro Man 1 says, What boundaries or biblical separation, he has in parentheses there, should a Christian establish with a professed believer who is now in a gay marriage? Um, I think that the, okay, biblically speaking, the ideal thing, a professed believer who's in a, in a gay marriage is someone is, and, and here's where I, the world would need to understand, they're going to think I'm targeting the topic of homosexuality. I'm really not. Um, I'm targeting the topic of, let's call it lifestyle sin, lifestyle sin, where there's a sin that I'm going to make my lifestyle. When that's going on, that is a call for the church to create separation between them, between the body, the local body and that person where they say to somebody, you're not following Christ. You're naming the name of Christ, but you're not following him. You're living in regular, habitual, open, unrepentant sin. So we're going to we're going to, this is a biblical excommunication. I, I hesitate to use that word because in Catholicism, it seems like it means something very different. We're talking about a, a local social body of Christ where they lo they know, hey, so-and-so is living in an apostate lifestyle. We're going to separate from them that they might hopefully learn that you are not part of the body of Christ right now, not, not visibly anyway. And may you experience the 
the reality of your decisions to rebel against Christ in your life and may you come back. And then they lovingly want them to come back and they reach out to them. You could, you could still reach out to them. You still try to inter engage with them, but they can't be part of the life of the church. Um, and so, yeah, there's a biblical way to do that. And I do think it's called for in a situation like what you're describing, a professed believer who's now in a gay marriage. I think that that, so, so local body, you're not part of our local body until you come back to Christ, you know, in, in your attitude in your life. Um, individually, I would still at least occasionally reach out to that person to let them know they're loved. If they're a family member, I wouldn't, I wouldn't cut them off from any family activities or any, any family relationships or anything like that at all. I'm just talking about the local body of Christ, the, the local church. Like they're not going to be part of the worship team. They're not going to be coming to the services. They're, you're going to have to draw a line there. This is an unpopular opinion here. And most churches don't do it. But 1 Corinthians does command it. Bonus question. All right, Sarah sent me a bonus question, so I'm going to go ahead and take it. Lance Wren, you get the bonus question. He says, hi, he says, hi, Mike, I'm a new cat owner. What are your cat's favorite kinds of toys? Um, my, the cats like toys that look like snakes. <laughs> That's probably their favorite one. So it's probably like there's this long, and this has nothing to do with Christianity, but there's this long, like sort of felt, you know, those really soft blankets. It looks kind of like that. And it's just a really long strand. It's probably like four feet long. We put it on the end of like a plastic rod and then we, we drag it around. So it looks like a snake in the ground. They love that. And there's another toy that's just like a, it looks like a fishing rod with a string on the end of it. And it looks like a large worm, like a big orange worm. They love that. So the, in other words, you find toys that just look like, um, something they would want to hunt and then you play with them and you play with them. Yeah, my wife does it more than I do. She plays with the cats more than I do. She's 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 a better cat person than I am, I guess. <laughs> I should play with them more, but yeah. All right, you guys, thank you so much for being here. Here's the news. Here's the news. Here's the update. And there is an update I want you to know about. Um, this Sunday, I'm teaching at my church on the abomination of desolation in Mark 13. And it's also Matthew, Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Monday, I'm doing that live. 1 p.m. live Monday, I'll be, I'll be with you. Um, then Friday's normal as well. But the following week, that next Sunday, right? The next Sunday, the 14th of February, I'm not going to be doing my normal Sunday night Bible study. And I won't be doing the Monday video because I'm not doing the Sunday study. And so I'm not, that week is not going to have a normal Bible study. I just want to let people know. I, you know, I don't know how to reach out to first time visitors because every week we get people who come to the church and it's their first time. And I can tell the regulars about a canceled service or something, but I can't tell first timers that. So here's my attempt. All right, y'all. If you're interested in the marriage videos, I'm going to put them up right here. The the male, the one for husbands and the one for wives, I'll put those right here. And I pray it blesses you. I have had people actually reach out to me and tell me that these teachings, not because of me, but because of what scripture says, saved their marriage. Like, and I hope it blesses yours as well. All right. That's all. <laughs>